following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We are looking this morning in uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. You're going to turn there in your Bibles. And uh, Luke gives this introductory comment before Jesus tells this parable. And Luke tells us that as they heard these things, meaning uh, kind of referring back to the story of Zacchaeus, uh, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Uh, So... It's kind of handy when Jesus gives us this kind of context, or Luke actually gives us this kind of context for a parable. Uh, He says that as Jesus was getting very close to Jerusalem, the disciples were envisioning uh, something very different than what Jesus envisioned. And they saw uh, Jesus ascending to some throne, uh, taking up his earthly reign, establishing Israel as a nation, And uh, we know from other passages of Scripture that the disciples were pretty excited about this because they they saw themselves ruling alongside Jesus in positions of great influence and power. And so as they get closer to Jerusalem, they're anticipating it's like Christmas, right? They're anticipating, man, pretty soon I'm going to be I'm going to be the secretary of state of a new nation. And boy, are people going to be impressed with me. When I write home and I, you know, tell my mom, look at me, I'm ruling over a country. Right? Uh, so Jesus tells a parable to bring them back to reality. Right? Uh, and in so doing in this parable, he unfolds uh, the, the, the future that's coming. And, and it says that in Luke 19 that in, after hearing these things, as Jesus was saying these things, and it refers back to the previous passage, and we need to touch on that briefly, it says... As Jesus uh, is, is talking about and talking to Zacchaeus, if you were here last Sunday, he said, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus' mission is to seek and save the lost. And of course, Jesus knows that he's going to Jerusalem to the cross. Uh, but the disciples still cannot fathom what this is about. So Jesus tells this parable. Uh, So let's read uh, the story and keep that context in mind. Um, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and set a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. 
And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Uh, in this passage, Jesus is going to give a, a brief picture of the future, uh, which is not at all what the disciples expect. And it's important for Jesus to warn them, uh, because after the cross, they're going to be confused and, and uh, un- uncertain. And so Jesus tells this parable to really give them a picture, a brief picture of, of history, how things will unfold. Um, how many of you would like to know the future? Anybody? Well, Jesus is going to tell us the future today. We're going to get to find out what the future is. And, you know, we're, we're curious about the future partly because it is a curious thing. It is a great unknown, and we have a curiosity about what's going to happen. But more than that, Knowing the future helps us be prepared for it. Uh, when Joseph was sent down to Egypt and he ends up interpreting Pharaoh's dream that there would be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine, that window on the future gave uh, the Egyptians and, and ultimately God used it to preserve Joseph's family by, by a means to prepare for what was coming. And that's Jesus' point here. He's saying, look, here's what's coming And the task is for us to know how to prepare in light of what we know is going to come. Uh, So let's look at that. We're going to look at two main points. Looking toward the future, what's going to happen. And in light of that, how do we live today? So let's unpack this passage. Um, I'm going to kind of walk through it and, and, and just give Jesus' timeline of future events. First thing Jesus says is that he must leave. Right? Not what the disciples expect. Of course, we looking back know what happened, right? And so it's not a surprise for us. But for the disciples, not what they were anticipating. And Jesus puts it in these terms. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Uh, the noble man here is cl- clearly picturing Jesus, that he would go to the cross, that he would die, he would rise again, and he would go away to a far country, he would, Scripture says, he ascended into heaven and he sits on the right hand of God where even now God has given him the kingdom. And he's given him the right and authority to rule. Uh, 
Jesus will someday return and he will establish that kingdom, but he's received the authority of the kingdom already. Uh, that's what it means to sit at the Father's right hand. He's in the, the place of ultimate authority and rule. And so Jesus is there, and Scripture also tells us that he's in the process of bringing everything under his dominion, rule, control, and power. Uh, and the implication of it being a far country is that he's not just, he's not just going uh, down the road, that it's a long journey that it will be a matter of time before he comes back. And of course, we can also verify that. Almost 2,000 years have gone by. Apparently, it was a very long journey, as we are still waiting. Um, uh, but Jesus foresaw this. And uh, the parable uh, encourages us that we haven't missed something. Right? We don't have to worry that somehow Jesus came back and we missed it. I right? just know it's going to be a long journey and uh, it's going to be time. And so don't panic if you feel that, you know, it's been 2,000 years and he hasn't come back yet. Maybe he forgot about us. No, Jesus knew that this was his plan. So an interesting note uh, in this account, which is different than the one in Matthew, it says that the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. Um, during this time when Jesus leaves earth and returns to heaven, uh, it will be a time of insurrection among the citizens of earth. Now, this isn't anything actually new, although the context here, it certainly is referring primarily to, to the Jews that Jesus had been so, so urgently preaching to, that they, for the most part, would reject him as king. Um, speaking of Jesus as the Messiah who came specifically to be their king and they rejected his rule. Uh, this has some historic uh, parallels. Uh, during, uh, around the time when Jesus was born, uh, Herod the Great Son was to be uh, succeeding him as king. Uh, but he was a horrible man and on, on one day of atonement he slaughtered 3,000 Jews in the vicinity of the temple. And when it was time for him to be appointed, the Jews sent a delegation to Rome pleading to Caesar not to make him king. And actually Caesar uh, caved in and didn't gave him some other title, not king, right? He still ruled, but he wasn't king. Uh, and so they would have thought of this when Jesus talks about this. Um, and the picture is of Jesus coming as king and, and, and the Jews saying, look, we don't want him as king. But it's a problem not only for the Jews, but it's really the truth of every human heart. Every human heart, in and of themselves, rejects God's rule and kingship over their life. Right? Um, uh, so that's the citizens. But there's another group uh, who are not the general citizens, but who Jesus identifies as his servants, as the servants of the nobleman. And he says to them, and he calls his ten servants, and he gives them ten minas, one mina each, and says to them, engage in business until I come. So in the intervening time, his servants are, are, not, are, are not allowed the luxury of just hanging out and dr drinking, you know, Coke, right? They have a job to do. And he gives them a mission. He gives them responsibilities and duties. And uh, in, in this account, again, different from the account in Matthew, uh, they get minas, and the task is to engage in business until he comes. They're, they're to somehow invest this 
money uh, to make a profit. Uh, the, the mina is also a considerably less amount of money than the talents given in Matthew. Uh, most commentators will say it's about three to four months wages. So not, not a huge amount, not a small amount either, but not, not vast wealth. Right? But they're given some, uh, some money, and their job is to somehow manage it in a way that it gains profit. Uh, and it's, I love that the, the nobleman doesn't, Spell out what that looks like. He gives them a lot of freedom, right? So maybe you could go set up a lemonade stand, right? Or you could uh, invest in the stock market if you're good at that. Or you could buy a cow and you know sell the calves. You all kinds of creative ways. He doesn't specify what they could do. Uh, gives them freedom, but the the task is there to make profit, right? They're to increase his assets while he's away. Right? So that's what the servants are to do. Um, then it says that he will, he will return, verse 15. Uh, when the king returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Uh, there is both return and there is reckoning. Uh, the king is gone for a while. Uh, the, the nobleman is gone, but he comes back as a king and he's received the kingdom. And the kingdom here is not so much land. It's not that he, he's now king of some, this faraway land. But much more like the picture would have been in the Roman Empire, they went to Rome, and you come back with authority to rule. And that's really the picture here. Jesus returning to set up his kingdom with the authority and right to rule as king. And on that day when he returns, there will be an accounting, a reckoning, for the uh, way we've handled the task and the responsibilities given to us. He says, call the servants. I want to know what they've been doing. And so it pictures the day when Jesus will return and he will come physically, visibly to earth as the ruling, reigning supreme king over everything. And scripture tells us that at that point, he will have put every rule and a power and authority under his dominion. Nothing will question his rule. And he will show up, and uh, however all of that works out, Jesus doesn't get into the details here, but we will stand before him. Every human being will stand before him. And we who claim to be his servants will give an account for what we've done with our mina, how we have used it, how we have invested it, how we have... Uh, uh, made profit or gain for for him, um, and uh, and we see also that it's a time of reward and judgment. Uh, not only will God evaluate our life, but it says that He evaluates everybody's life. Uh, and and as the passage says, the first came and said, "Lord, your mina has made ten minas more." He said, "Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority." over ten cities. So for those who are faithful and who manage well uh, what God has entrusted and deposited to them, there will be reward. And uh, what's startling in this is the contrast between the, the minas, the, the deposit that's given, and the reward that they get in return. Right? So the first guy, he takes his three months' worth of wages and he, he actually multiplies it to, to 10 minas, which is a 1,000% increase. 
supposedly. I'm not good enough at math, math to know that, but that's what the commentators say, so I'm taking their word for it. Thousand percent increase, right? Not bad business, right? And uh, the, the, the king uh, praises him as a, a guy who's done a great job and who is a good servant. And I don't know about you, but when I stand before God, how I long to hear those words, right? That he will say to us, well done. You are a good servant. Uh, there will be that verbal praise from the mouth of God himself. Uh, he notices your work. He notices your life. And when the day of reckoning comes, when you will give an account where you have faithfully served him, he will praise you for it. Right? He will affirm your heart and your life, and he will commend you. But not only that, uh, he rewards you. And the man receives, he says, okay, you got ten minus, I'm going to give you ten cities. Right? That's, that's pretty good, that's pretty good. So even though his increase was 1,000%, what he gets back in reward is a million times more, right? He receives ten cities. And the picture here is that we will rule alongside Jesus, right? We don't go to heaven just to learn how to play the harp and float on clouds, right? We will have uh, even greater responsibility and greater partnership and participation with God in, in eternity, ruling with him. Now, what does this look like? Well, I don't know what it looks like. And I'm not, I'm, I don't know who lives in these cities, like, and I don't know what it means to rule them. Honestly, when I think about this, and, and uh, as somebody who is in a leadership position, it's kind of it's kind of depressing for me actually. It's like, you know, I can't wait to get out of the. I want to retire from this job, right? I I'm tired of being in charge of stuff, right? Well, the good news is in heaven. Uh, first of all, one of the reasons I'm tired of leading stuff is because I'm 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 a fallen sinful leader, right? And so I don't do it very well because I, I, I'm human, I'm weak, I'm limited. Well, on that day, we will rule in his authority and his power without the encumbrance of our sinful nature. Right? We will be fully redeemed and we will be able to have a capacity to lead far beyond what we have now. But the other thing that drains us, of course, when we lead anything, whether it's our family, whether it's a Sunday school class, whether it's a whole organization, it's not only we fallen, but we're also leading sinful fallen people, which also is a drag, right? And it's just not fun. And that's the, the part of my job I don't like the most is people who do stupid things, right? And I have to somehow deal with their stupidity. And, and somehow I'm responsible for it, right? Because they, they, they don't sign the papers I do. <laughs> right? you, get, you get worn down by that. But, of course, in heaven it won't be that way. Right? We will lead redeemed, restored creation where there will be perfect justice and life will work and things will be good. And so uh, leading, ruling with Christ will be easy. Right? And I don't know what this looks like. I, I really don't. I can't even imagine it. And, and uh, you know, it will be, we'll have to wait till we get there. Uh, but I do know this, that when you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, God created us to rule. Right? Uh, he created us to be kings and, and lords and rulers. And I don't know what we rule over, but when, when we get to heaven, we will have the privilege and the opportunity of ruling stuff, ruling cities, ruling kingdoms, ruling alongside with Christ, 
over vast his vast empire of eternity, right? And we will have jobs and responsibilities. And I'm telling you, for most of us, you, you don't want to get to heaven and realize that your 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 lordship is over the the pots and pans in the kitchen, right? Now, now it'll be, if that's your job, you'll love it. And because you're redeemed, you're going to rejoice and you're going to worship God through doing dishes. It's going to be good, right? But I'm thinking that's not what you really want to shoot for. <clears throat> I think ruling over ten cities and, and governing the dishwashers just sounds a lot better, right? I'm just saying. So think about that, right? There will be reward. But there's also judgment. And there's two groups of people who are judged. And the first one is the... The guy who took his mina and hid it. Literally, he wraps it up in a, in a head cloth, uh, a cloth that they would have worn to protect their, their neck from the sun. Right? And he hides it. And uh, the master, says, he comes and he says, uh, he says, I was afraid. Uh, here's your mina, which I kept in a handkerchief. I was afraid because you are a severe man. Right? You reap where you don't sow and you, you raise up uh, where you don't put down. And I was afraid of you. So I just hid it. Right? And I have nothing to show for it. And the, the king says to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. It's important to see that in this parable, this servant uh, falls under judgment. Right. And we'll see in a minute uh, kind of what, what, why. But he does not enter the kingdom. Right? Because he did nothing with the minas, because he did nothing with what God gave him, it is taken away from him and given to somebody else, and he is wicked, and he is rejected by the king. And he falls under judgment. Um, and then the king says, why didn't you just at least put it in the bank and get interest? Right? Okay, so you're lazy, but there's, even lazy people can make this work, right? Uh, you're not only lazy, you're stupid. You're foolish. In, in, in Scripture's terms, you are foolish because you did not take the right moral action with what God gave you. And so he is rejected. And in the end, he ends up losing everything, losing everything, his own soul. Right? And finally, the last group also fall under judgment, those who rejected him as king, right? They flat out rejected God's rule over their life. And that, that's the world we live in. Right? The world we live in is a world where the hearts of men are treasonous against God, right? Um, their great sin is not their moral failures. It is not, you know, their horrible, perverted sin. Their great crime is that they have rejected God as king, and no matter how moral or immoral their life, they are guilty of treason. And it says that they will be brought before the king and he will slaughter them. There will be great judgment poured out on their life because they've refused him as king. Okay, so that's the timeline. That's what will happen. That's the future as it will come down. And we can be absolutely certain and confident this is how it will be. Uh, Paul, and, and in other places, Jesus teaches on this. He'll teach on it again in Luke. This is what will happen. We are in the in-between time. The time is coming when Jesus will return. And so the great question is, now that we know this, and we know that one day we will stand before Jesus, and we will give an account for our life, 
We will give an answer for how we have used the deposit that he's put to us. Uh, how do we prepare for that? And how do we prepare so that when we stand before him on that day, we don't end up in the dish room, right? Or worse yet, end up not in the kingdom. Uh, how do we make the most of our life so that we will receive the reward he longs to give us? Well, here's how we need to be living in the present. Um, and to, to unpack this a little further, there's some questions we, we cannot help but asking of, as we look at this passage. And the first question I want to know is, how do I measure profit? Okay, the king comes and he evaluates, he takes an account, and he wants to know, what profit have you made? I gave you one minus, uh, how much have you increased it? Um, so, uh, you, what, what does that look like, right? What is the profit that, that he's looking for? Um, he talks about two ways of gaining this profit. One, he says, engage in business until I come, right? Well, what does this engaging in business look like? What exactly does Jesus have in mind? Um, secondly, he says, when he comes back, he says, uh, call the servants uh, to me, given the money, that he might know what they had gained by doing their business. Right? So the, the question is, what is the profit he's looking for? And clearly, it uses money, but Jesus, you know, Jesus is not hoping that when you come back, you'll have a big bank account. Right? We know that's not true, because the, the gain, the profit that God will look for is eternal. And so he's not wanting you to invest your money wisely and play the stocks and end, you know, with millions of dollars because when you die, it stays here, right? That's not what he's looking for. So what is he looking for? How, how do you measure profit according to God's economy? Well, of course, the easiest answer would be that, uh, that Jesus is looking for converts, that he wants you to be bringing others to Christ. And certainly that would be profit for the kingdom, and, uh, and certainly that would be one of the things that, that, that he's looking for. Um, the, the problem, though, with seeing it only that light is that the parable itself makes it very clear that we're living in an age where the majority of the people have been treasonous against God. Right? Um, it's not just a matter of us going out and dragging people into the kingdom. Right? And we all know that. If you've ever shared the gospel with people, you know it's just not that simple. You just don't go out there and say, you know, God loves you, Dad, on the cross for you. Would you like to pray? Yes, right? And everybody you share that message with gets saved. If it were only that simple, right, then we could measure it by converts. But the truth is that uh, people's hearts are set against God as their king. And we all know the experience of sharing the gospel with people who said, well, so I'm just not interested, right? I don't want God ruling over my life. So just get lost, right? Um, uh, we know stories of missionaries who have gone off to very remote, difficult places where they've been a pioneer and spent 30 years of their life faithfully preaching the gospel. And after 30 or 40 years, may not even have one convert to show for it. Right? Uh, we also know that there are people in, in places in the West where they're you know, saturated with the gospel you know, go, go to the Bible Belt and plant a church, which I have friends who do this. You go to the Bible Belt, plant a church, thousands of people come to Christ. And pretty soon you have a huge church and you can write books and you become famous 
and you know they make movies about you and I don't know whatever and eventually you have an affair with your secretary and kind of how it goes right so um, which one's more faithful right if we measure it just by converts which one's more faithful right well I think there's more to it than just that uh, as important as it is to see people come to Christ, I don't think that's the measure God's going to use. Right? So if in your life you're kind of worried, man, I've only led one person to Christ in my whole life, you know, I'm only going to get one city. Is it the dish room for me? Right? Um, I think there's more to it. What is the currency of the kingdom? Well, Jesus does not answer that in this passage, but he does answer it throughout the Gospels and, and, and Paul as well. And if, uh, if we could just use Jesus' prayers, I think it would give us a clue as to what, what he's looking for. Right? So we could look at the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the Luke version of it goes like this. Lord, uh, disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say this. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. First two things Jesus prays for. God's glory and his kingdom. Uh, We could also do actually Jesus' prayer, kind of the real Lord's prayer in John 17. um, says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The hour of the cross. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I have accomplished the work you gave me to do, and it has glorified your name. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Okay, so what do you think is the number one currency that that God is looking for? What profit he is looking for? Well, clearly it is his glory. It is his glory. I believe that when Jesus comes and he evaluates our life and he asks for a reckoning, what he wants to know is in what ways have you increased and expanded the glory of God through your life? Okay. So, so the pastor who's pastoring some mega church and saw thousands of people come to Christ, but uh, has, has wrecked the reputation of God through immorality or through the way he's treated people or through um, whatever scandals have brought... Uh, not glory to God's name, but disglory, discredit. Right? That's a problem. Right? That's a problem. But the missionary who's gone out and who's faithfully lived out the gospel for 30 or 40 years in a place where nobody has come to Christ, but everybody has seen the glory of God lived out in their presence, right? which one is more faithful? Right? Which one is more faithful? We should be living our life for God's glory. That should be the number one passion of our life. That everything we do, everything we say, our character, 
our habits, uh, our lifestyle, proclaim the wonder and holiness and glory of God. That his fame and his reputation, uh, the reputation of his name, would expand and increase because of my life. That's an awesome task. Because we are sinful, finite beings. How could we possibly bring glory to the God who created the universe? Well, um, we'll get to that more in the second part for sure. But um, but we do it through our... Uh, our lifestyle, a life that has character and integrity and holiness, uh, by our compassion for poor and hurting people, by our love for our neighbor and our family and our spouse. Right? Um, God will measure how much we have increased his glory through our life. And we should be evaluating our life on the same principle, right? Am I living in such a way that it is increasing God's glory? Is it giving greater honor to his name? Is he being exalted as a result of my life? Right. Uh, was, <clears throat> um, so first thing is his, his glory. I think second thing that we can measure it by is the expanse of his kingdom. It says, thy kingdom come. Uh, God's kingdom, of course, is Jesus coming and setting it up at the end. But in the meantime, we can expand God's rule over our, our life and our family and our, uh, our circles of influence. Um, and to do that, it means that we, we, unlike the crowd who says we reject him as king, that we are models of what it looks like to live in full submission Yielded to his will and his authority and his, his dominion over our life. So it means that we, we do pursue holiness. We pursue a life that is fully uh, in his will. And, um, you know, I think most of us do that, right? We, we are serious about his will. And so if we have to move, we feel God, God, God leading us to a new position or a new ministry. We take it seriously and we pray fervently for God's will to be done. And that's great. Uh, But it's not just God's will in the big things. It's God's will in the everyday tiny details. Um, Sometimes we worry too much about God's huge will and like who I marry or where I go to college or what career I choose. And we spend far too little time sweating over God's will on everyday details. Here's one example. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says this. Uh, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Okay. How good are we doing at those things? Rejoicing always. Rejoicing always. We got that one down? I rejoice always, every time, always when good things happen. Always. The other days, not so much, right? Um, pray without ceasing. Right? Can, can you honestly say that unceasing prayer and, and a heart that's constantly seeking a dependence on God characterizes your, your whole life? Right? 
That's what it means to be in his will. That's what it means to be under his lordship. Um, giving thanks in all circumstances. I mean, thanks in all circumstances, right? It's just a lot of these little details that we fail to do that leave us short in the, in the, in the area of, of his kingship and his glory. Right? Um, so you've got to do both. Be, be consumed with his will in the big things, but also in these daily details. Um, so that's what that's how we measure, right? That's I think, and, and God certainly measures other things too. You know, we have resources and time and our stewardship, all these things, decisions, lots of things. But the the big categories I believe are His glory and His kingdom, and how we pursue and expand those things through our life. But the question is, how do we do that? And as I as I said, it's not that simple. You know, how how do we give glory to God's name? How do we as finite, sinful, fallen human beings who are struggling through life, how do we radiate the glory of an infinite God through our life? Not easy, right? How do we do that? Um, Well, I think we do it by understanding what the minus is. What what is this coin? What is this deposit that God puts in our life? Um, And again, he doesn't spell it out, but he gives us some clues. Uh, and oftentimes it's, it's categorized as time, talents, abilities, opportunities, resources, wealth. Uh, but those are not the most vital treasure that God has given you. What is the most vital, significant treasure that God has entrusted into your life? I, I like what, what the, the king says to the, the servant who hid the coin, right? Notice what he says. He says, why didn't you put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have at least collected it with interest. Gives us a great clue about how this deposit God gives us works. Whatever it is that Jesus is thinking about is something that uh, can glorify God without us actually doing anything with it. And I love this picture because it's hope for all of us, right? So, so some of you lazy people out there, there's hope for you, right? Because this deposit, if you just, if you'll just Put it in the bank. If you just deposit it in the right place, it will glorify God. It will produce uh, profit right, without you really doing anything about it. Right? So what is this minus? What is this deposit that God puts in us that will produce results for his glory? Well, I believe it is ultimately, and above everything else and all the little things it could be, what it ultimately is is the gospel. It's, it's the work of Jesus on the cross uh, and the power that comes through the resurrection. Right? And, and, and if you remember this, the servant, right, his failure was, to, was what? That he hid it. That he made no use of it. Right? The other two guys made, made good use of it. But this guy failed because he, he hid it. He did not take and use it in his life. And, and see, that's the reality, is if you hear the gospel, and no matter how religious you are, no matter how Christian you are, no matter how much you serve God, but if you don't actually do it based on the work of the gospel in your life, there's a problem. Right? And all that service and all that work and all that effort will be nothing if it's not, first and foremost, uh, coming from the work of the gospel in your heart.
what God has deposited into our life above everything is, is the gospel. It's the work of Jesus Christ on the cross which transforms our heart and our life. Um, and, and that in itself, if we will just receive the work of Christ, if we will just honestly trust and bring into our life the full work of Christ and, it's, and the power of the resurrection, your life will bring glory to God. Right? Because he will save you. And someday Ephesians says he will hold you up as, as, a, as a jewel showing his many faceted uh, wisdom in just saving you. Paul says it this way also in Ephesians. He says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And so, so as God saved you. Uh, he adopted you as sons. He saved you. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. His saving you is in your life to the praise of his glorious grace. The very fact that you are his child adopted as sons as a witness and testimony to the glory and wonder of God. So praise God. If, you, if you've accepted Christ, if you've put your faith in the gospel, if you have not hid it away somewhere but put it in your heart, you're already getting interest, right? You haven't done anything. You just showed up this morning, right? When you stand before Jesus, there will be glory radiated through your life that will count as profit. And God will say to you, well done, and he'll say, but I didn't do anything. And he'll say, yeah, isn't that awesome? <laughs> and your life still brings glory to me because of what I have done in your life to save and redeem you. Uh, Paul writes, continuing in Ephesians 1, he says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, so, uh, so that we might be to the praise of his glory, in whom you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, your life came to the praise of his glory. Okay. To the praise of his glory. Uh, our greatest stewardship, I believe, is the gospel. What are we doing with the, the grace of, of God through Jesus on the cross to forgive our sins and to transform our rebellious hearts into people who long to serve and love him? Now, of course, they're serving on top of that. And, and anybody who's being transformed, anybody who's been touched by that gospel can't just sit on it, right? Uh, it's hard for us to not, even just through our conduct and through the, the life change that comes about, have an impact on the world around us. Uh, this last week, we got to go down to the beach uh, with the Rubishes, and John makes friends with everybody, all the staff love him. And he's like famous there. And uh, one of the Thai waitstaff on the last day he was there was sharing how impressed he was that Westerners love their families. And they go to places and they spend time with their kids and they invest in their families. Isn't that what he said? Something to that effect? He said, Thai people don't do that. He says, Thai people are not like that, right? And he didn't know that we were Christians. Well, maybe he did. I don't know. Um, but... There's a witness, right? There's a witness because we're just living life transformed by the gospel and it's a testimony to God's grace. Right? Um, we need to be good stewards of the gospel and it means uh, we serve 
motivated primarily by expanding the work of Christ through the gospel. All the other things we do are great, but if it's not filled with the life-giving power of the cross, right, it, will not, it will not have ultimate benefit. Right? Uh, we are to proclaim the gospel if nobody receives it. It will be a witness against them. Right? It will give glory to God and it will bring condemnation to them. But that's God's plan. Right? That is God's plan. So we are to be declaring the gospel. And we are to be doing life and ministry through the truths of the gospel. That we are sinful people who desperately need the grace and forgiveness of a loving God. Minister through our high priest on the cross. Who now, that priest now reigns on high and will someday come again. And we will give an account what has the gospel done in our life and through our life to the world around us? Right? Are we preparing for that day? Uh, it is coming. And it could be coming a lot sooner than we are prepared for. Right? Um, and I know that oftentimes it gets discouraging, right? Anybody ever felt like just giving up, <laughs> getting burned out? Feeling like, you know, I keep trying and it's not, I'm not succeeding, you know, I'm not accomplishing the things I thought I would. It's discouraging. Do not give up, right? The gospel is at work in your life. Um, let Jesus do his work in you, right? Yield your life to his power and his authority and say, God, I, I want you to be king over my life. I want you to fill me with your presence and your spirit. I want you to do that work in me that's life transforming so that when I stand before you at the end, I will have something eternal to show for my life that will give you glory and praise. Do not give up. Uh, Be faithful with what God has given you. Be faithful day by day to steward. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. his gift.